Let's open up in a word of prayer, please. Oh, Lord, as we begin our time this morning, just ask that you would bless it, that you would give us hearts that are receptive to your word. You would give me, Lord, the right words to speak. Keep me from error, Lord, that you might be glorified and your people might be edified. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, um, as we uh, engage in class seven um, in our 10 classes on uh, Burroughs' book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, uh, we have uh, transitioned from the joys of contentment to the evils of discontentment. And we are uh, week two into this sort of secondary focus in the book. Um, And by way of reminder, we'll begin with some reminders and some housekeeping items to kind of reorient ourselves. Um, But as we take up, this is supposed to be chapter nine in Burroughs' book, if you're following along. His overarching point is that discontentment is evil, not an unfortunate mental state, not a neutral viewpoint on life when bad things happen, evil. And last week we looked at number 16 and an example of discontentment in action, and we drew seven conclusions about what discontentment was. Just by way of reminder, we we noticed that discontentment doesn't have to be explicitly against the Lord to be against the Lord, that grumbling about our circumstances, our leaders, or whatever else the Lord ordains is still discontentment still rebellion related discontentedness is rebellion or at the very least it's related to rebellion discontentment minimizes or ignores the blessings that we have discontentment is often rooted in a desire for creature comforts or other worldly desires it can result in our romanticizing sin or minimizing the blessings of righteousness And it's linked to an atheistic, unbelieving mistrust of God. And by that, I mean practical atheism, not actual atheism. Um, And it is evil deserving of the wrath of God. And from those uh, conclusions from number 16, we defined discontentment as is there in italics in your notes. That discontentment is when we, sinful and short-sighted specks of dust that we are, arrogantly and presumptuously believe that the sovereign, omniscient, good, loving, perfect king of the universe has shorted us in his providences. We also saw that discontentment is more than not liking something that God is doing in our lives. It's more than being scared. It's more than being troubled or confused. We are discontented rebels when we give into those feelings, when we decide that we have been shorted by God or that he is wrong or that he is unjust or unfair in doing something. Discontentment is a heart issue that challenges God's good, just governance of the world. And after seeing that, we then transitioned into some reasons as to why discontentment is so evil. We first looked at the fact that it denied the priority of our sanctification. And then we began to look at how discontent denies, or maybe another better word would be neglects, the blessings of our salvation. And that's where we're going to go today. We're going to continue on in that line of thought, how discontentment neglects or denies the blessings of our salvation. Um, After that, Burroughs offers yet another series of reasons as to why discontentment is evil, which we will look at 
And then he kind of transitions a little bit, uh, still in the same theme, but he transitions a little bit into some more practicalities. So not only is discontentment evil, but it also, therefore, produces some harmful effects in our lives, which we'll look at. And then sort of the cherry on the, the Sunday. not only is discontent evil, not only is it harmful, it's just plain stupid. And so he explains why that's the case as well. And so that's kind of our outline for today. Evil, evil again, harmful, and stupid. Um, now, I do want to just do two quick housekeeping notes, one practical, one uh, encouraging. The practical side, if you don't have an outline, if you're new, or handout, I mean, they are back there in the sound booth. But if you do, I would invite you to open it up and take a look and collectively gasp at how many items are in this handout. There's a lot. There's a lot. And it is conceivable that I could get through all of this today. To do that would require you to be completely silent. No questions, no comments. It would require me to be very fast. Um, and uh, I don't want to do either of those two things. Um, in fact, next week's lesson, you know, these first two chapters, eight and nine, were pretty heavy on content. Next week's pretty light. So not only uh, should I not get through this, I don't want to get through all of this. I need some of this to bleed over into next week or we're going to have a short equipping hour. It won't be an equipping hour, it'll be an equipping half hour. So to avoid that... Please don't get uh, overwhelmed by this. If you're sitting there going, ooh, that poor guy, I should just let him make his point so we can get through all this. No, I want engagement. I need engagement. Ask your questions, make your comments. We're going to you know, read, have some readers for scripture. I'm going to ask some interactive questions. It's okay. It's designed to not get through everything today. Second sort of point, this one is more encouraging. When I was reading the chapters, and I got to you know reason 22 as to why discontentment is evil, I, I felt this sort of like, really, Burroughs? I mean, come on. Like, all I needed was number 16. Like, it's pretty evil. Point's clearly made. You're not just beating this horse. You've resurrected it, and you're beating it again. Like, come on. And then I realized that's not what he's doing at all. By making this point over and over and over again, yes, he wants us to recoil from the evils of discontentment, but he's not merely doing that. Um, most of the content that we're going to go through is, is, you know, is beneficial for its own sake. Um, some of the content we're going to go through is meant to help us diagnose discontent in our own lives. It's, it's helpful for us to potentially see, oh man, I'm doing that, and, and repent over it in particular. And in, in every case, in every case, it's meant to be sort of the opposite end of the coin as well. So as we go through, you know, the very first one sort of there in your outline, it denies that we've been called out of the world. Burroughs doesn't just want us to see that discontentment denies that. He wants us to then pursue the opposite truth. Because by pursuing the opposite truth, we ward ourselves against discontentment. We are pursuing contentment by doing the opposite of the thing that discontentment causes us to do or necessitates us doing. So as we're going through this, the punchline for every single one is not discontentment is evil, check. It's, it's each one is individually beneficial. And so um, it does go, it, it is worth going through each one individually. Does that make sense? All right, so no fatigue, it's okay, everything has a point. Um, any questions on where we were last week or kind of where we're going today? Yes, Randy, right? Oh, sure. 
it's the uh, rare jewel of Christian contentment. And I, uh, Jeremiah Burroughs, right? I, always, I call him Richard in my head for some reasons. Jeremiah Burroughs. I have no idea why. Um, Jeremiah Burroughs. It's a 500-plus-year-old book. Um, okay, other questions? Everyone clear? Thoroughly encouraged? Excellent. All right. All right, so let's start looking at uh, or continuing in the discussion as to why discontentment is evil, specifically that it denies the blessings of our salvations and um, everything you see under number two all the way to eh, D is, uh, is under this header of it denying the blessings of our salvation. So first one, it, it denies that we have been called out of the world. And you know, for, the, for the unbeliever, for the non-Christian, their, their citizenship is in this world. Their life now is the best life they're going to have, whatever that looks like. But for Christians, that's, that's not the case. When we were saved, we were called out of the world. Paul tells us in Colossians that we were plucked from the kingdom of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of, of God's beloved son, We still need to eat and sleep and participate in society, but this world is no longer our home. We are aliens and sojourners here. And Burroughs Burroughs writes that the soul, which was before seeking for contentment in the world and cleaving to the creature, maybe creature comforts, that sort of thing, is now called out of the world by the Lord who says, O soul, your happiness is not here. Your rest is not here. Your happiness is elsewhere, and your heart is loosened from all the things that are here below in the world. And Burroughs' point in this, this item is that if we've been called out of the world, then we should be able to properly use the things in the world, and we should be able to lay down those things that we have in the world if God were to so will it. And if we can't, if we're living like what we wear what we look like, what we eat, what our social status is, or whatever else is so central to our lives that we are discontent when we lack something, we are practically in practice denying the reality that this world is no longer our home. I I quoted it last time, but Burroughs offers a test. He says, if God, by an affliction, should come to take anything in the world from you, and you can part from it with ease, without tearing, it is a sign that your heart is not glued to the world. And, of course, the opposite would also be true. Now, uh, one quick disclaimer. I, I always feel compelled to say something along these lines when we talk about the proper use of blessings and good things in the world. When Burroughs says that we've been called out of the world, and it's a true point, um, he, he's not calling us, the Bible's not calling us to apathy or to indifference. Um, Sherry and I had a conversation about this afterwards. Look, Christianity isn't Buddhism, right? Like, the the goal isn't nothingness. The goal isn't detachment from the world. Our goal isn't to not care or to be indifferent to what God has given us. That's not what we're called to, and sometimes we make that mistake. Sometimes we think that in order for me to be able to give up whatever good thing I have, I have to not care about it. I have to not you know, view it as good or valuable. I have to be indifferent to it. Otherwise, I'm going to have a hard time giving it up. And that's, that isn't what the Bible calls us to. It calls us to enjoying the blessings that, that God has given us for his service in the boundaries of what he has given us. But it's not apathy. It's not indifference. Um, one good and potentially incomplete analogy would be 
if you ha were invited, imagine, imagine someone invites you on vacation, like uh, a, a, a close, trusted family friend invites you on vacation, but this thing is so far beyond your ability to afford that you would have no hope of ever doing this on your own. And in that context, you know, it would be a mistake for you to turn it down. It would be a mistake for you to pretend that you earned it, that you're entitled to going on this vacation that you were given as a gift. It would be a mistake to dishonor your, your host. If they want to go to dinner at a certain place, you go to dinner where they invite you. If they set an itinerary, that's the itinerary for the vacation. That's sort of the, the cost of going on the trip. If they decide that they uh, want to go shopping and commemorate the trip and they want to give you money for yourself and for you know Cousin Billy at home who didn't get to go, it would be a mistake to take that money and spend it all on yourself and not use it the way the host has given it to you. In the same way, we are stewards of what God has given us in the world. We get to enjoy the blessings that he's given us to the extent that he has given it to us within the boundaries that he has given to us. And if it gets cut short, that's fine. We had it for a little while. It was a gift. But that's more the mentality than, than apathy or indifference and certainly not sort of cleaving to it as if these things that we have are all important. We are to celebrate and cherish the blessings that God has given us and we are to lay them down at his request because the gifts are just that, gifts and because we are stewards of them for his glory. So again, being called out of the world doesn't mean apathy or indifference. It means stewardship. Make sense? Questions? Comments? All right, people, I asked for engagement, but that's fine. No, it's fine. Um, okay, so next one. It denies that we receive Jesus as Lord as well as Savior as Lord as well as Savior. Um, Jesus is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. He's not an insurance policy against hell. When we come to saving faith, we necessarily are repenting of our rebellion against God's rule, even as we embrace his substitutionary death and his perfect life lived for us. And Burroughs' point here is that the person who repents uh, of, of that rebellion, but then just gets right back up and goes and... and re-engages in it, casts doubt on the sincerity of their repentance. And every parent knows what that's like. You know, your kid does something wrong, you catch them, they say, I'm sorry, and they go right back to doing it again. They weren't really sorry. They just knew that I'm sorry were the right words in that particular moment. Um, and so his point is, is, we have sincerely repented of our rebellion. If we are now submitting ourselves under the rule of Jesus for our lives, how can we complain when our Lord ordains something for us? By complaining, we are practically denying his lordship and his right to disposition our circumstances and our lives. Make sense? Questions? Comments? Oh, Matt, yes. Thank you for waving so emphatically. We receive Jesus as Lord as well as Savior. Mm -hmm. By Savior, we mean He saves us from our sin. Yeah. Right? He covers us with His blood. Mm -hmm. And yet, we still find ourselves struggling with sin. Yes. Um, there can be a tendency, perhaps, uh, to find habitual sin in our lives that we're fighting against, but we find ourselves not succeeding and putting yeah. into that. How does that play into this aspect of being content even in those circumstances, if, if at all? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think um, 
It's a really good question. So the question is, is as we as we are given new natures, as we are you know new creatures with the law of God written on our heart, yet we still sin, and it's a grievous thing that we do, and it's a painful thing, and oftentimes there's consequences for it. So how do you wrestle with that and yet pursue contentment? Is that a fair summary? Um, very, very nuancedly, I guess is the right word. I mean, I think the reality is at the end of the day, we are capable of feeling more than one thing in a particular moment. Um, and so we can still grieve over our sin. We can still resolve, repent to, to, to fight it. And at the same point in time, trust and rejoice in the fact that that sin is covered, that we are new creations, that there will be a point in time in which this body goes away. Um, I, I don't think wrestling with those sins should cause discontentment at the end of the day because of the, the high and mighty promises of God. Not only that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just, not just to forgive, but to cleanse. The fact that sins shall no longer have mastery over you, Romans 5. There, there's, there's blessing and promise that we have that can give us hope and joy despite continuing to struggle in it, um, even though it is right, I think, that we are we are grieved as we see ourselves, you know, struggle with the same thing over and over and over again. It's a triumphant grief, almost, that should kind of mark us. Um, does that get what you're... Okay, good. Gary. As he asked that question, I got to thinking about how it's in my own life, uh, as he says, sometimes you, you still sin. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of times, it's someone pointed that out to me because I kind of wondered why this. There is a Satan, mm-hmm. and we are under attack, and sometimes I think we forget that, that we are spiritually at war. The Bible teaches mm-hmm. that. And so I know some things that have helped me, especially <clears throat> in this, my, my older age, but. You know, I, I'm working on some stuff, but I find there are a lot of verses that tell you to practice, practice, practice. You know, I'm an old coach, mm-hmm. and so practice was always important as a coach. As an athlete, practice was always important. Well, practice requires repetition, repetition, otherwise you lose it. And so you know, I find that I need to get into the Word Mm-hmm. And I need to look at it as practice, not as, you know, as I went to practice, I demanded as a coach that you come to practice. Mm-hmm. I think we Christians sometimes don't realize we need to practice. We, and you think about an army, they train over and over and over to combat an enemy. So if we don't train ourselves to and keep training and keep training, well, Satan's going to win. We, we need to realize there's an enemy out there. Let's do battle with him as well. We're not always going to win, but we will win eventually. And if we keep practicing, I think God will still bless and help you in that because you gain more, say, weapons, internal weapons in some way to perhaps overcome those things and try not to get discouraged. Okay, I'm going to go practice some more. I'm going to practice some more. It's a great point. At one level, the Christian life is this amazing supernatural thing. I mean, God has, has, has 
raised dead sinners, join them to his son. You're no longer who you were. You're united to Christ. You're in this body of sin and death. There's these you're, you're warring against principalities and powers. There's massive supernatural realities. But in practice, it looks pretty mundane. It's, it's diligence in prayer, diligence in attending uh, body life and being in the word. I mean, supernatural reality sort of juxtaposed with the basic disciplinary things that we have to fight through every day. And if we don't, we start losing that, that, that bigger war pretty, pretty handily. Christina? And I think that uh, as a yes and, not a... Sure, yeah, yeah, please. <laughs> yes and, I think we often forget to actually repent. I think we actually <laughs> often think like, oh, I see my sin and I'm going to fix it next time. I'm going to put off the sin, I'm going to do better. And we forget that, like, you know, like, we know that we are forgiven and we yet, yet we still need more forgiveness. And, yet it was like, and, we, and I think that that, like, I think it's our superpower. I think it's like, you know, like in the sense of like, you know, like that's where we supercharge the change is by recognizing, confessing it to God, and he's faithful to forgive us and cleanse us. And, um, and I think that we forget that. I, th- I forget that. I forget sure. because I'm like, oh, I see this, but I don't go to God and say, I see it. Help me where I don't still see it. And I believe, help me in my unbelief. So I can, and we need to because that's where, like, that's where we get the power and the joy and the peace to, to see him do his good work in our lives. It's a great point, and I love I love parenting analogies for that reason. If you've got two kids who are sitting in front of a TV and they're fighting over the remote, and one kid punches the other kid, and then immediately like says, "Watch whatever you want to watch is fine." Like I'm glad that they eventually did the loving thing, but there's something in between the punch and the 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 you know offer to let them control the remote that needs to happen as well relationally. So. I agree. You know, the repentance piece is important. The confession piece before God is important 100%. Yeah, John. Um, a couple of things, Jason. Um, I'm hearing him also imply that, and I, I can't make this into a law-based salvation or a work-dependent based salvation. That neither one of those is going to work because I'm going to add more to my burden. It's learning how to rightly have a right submitted submission to his word and how to carry that out, walk that out in obedience and have a right understanding about how we take these things that God has blessed us with that we have at our disposal for our stewardship so that we walk this aright so we don't, it's learning how to be content with those things instead of taking over and counseling God over it (laughs) Agreed, agreed Alright, well I asked for engagement, thank you for that Uh, we do need to move on a little bit Um, but no, very much appreciated. Um, all right. Well, the next one it denies the relationships that we have with God in Christ, and so this one is this one's fun. A couple. Of, I need four readers if uh, folks are willing to raise some hands. Four readers. Okay. Let's see. Matt, how about uh, Romans eight fifteen for you? Uh, Josh, uh, Ephesians five thirty two. I saw your hand. Right. Okay. Two more. Rodney, uh, you've got First uh, Corinthians twelve twenty seven. One more. Tim, uh, Romans eight twenty nine. So um, these are all passages, as we're going to read in a second, that just show us the variety of relationships that we have uh, by virtue of our uh, relationship with God in Christ. So the very first one, we are sons of the King. Uh, I think, Matt, you had 8.15, right? Not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. 
We are sons of the king. Uh, I think in your notes I also put 2 Corinthians 6, verse 18, uh, is, is God talking, quoting an Old Testament passage, and he says, I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. We are sons of the king. Who um, at Ephesians 5.32? Josh? Yeah. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Um, probably should add a little bit more. That is the, uh, <laughs> the passage referring to marriage the, um, and that the church collectively is the bride of Christ. Um, so we are the bride or, uh, of Christ. We are the sons of the king. Um, Rodney, you had 1 Corinthians 12, right? Yep. 27. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. We are the body of Christ collectively, the physical manifestation of Jesus on this earth. Uh, Tim, you had Romans 8.29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Somewhat implied in being sons of the King, we are also brothers and sisters of the Messiah. Um, and then la- it's not, I didn't ask a reader, but we're also indwelled by the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians six nineteen to 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So sons, bride, body, brothers and sisters, indwelt, temple of the, of the Spirit. Think, think about these relationships for a second. Think about what kind of exalted positions they imply, or not imply, directly tell us that we're in. And think about how ridiculously amazing it is that people who were once rebels now get to enjoy these relationships with God. And then think about how shameful it is that we who would grumble about what our brother, husband, father, Lord is doing. It would be like, as an analogy, uh, the first lady. Now, in, as I'm going to go on, pick a president you like. I don't care who it is. I don't care if you go back to Washington or Lincoln. Just pick a president you like personally. Um, imagine if the first lady of that president went out to reporters and said, this guy doesn't know what he's doing. I mean, you should see him in private. He's an idiot. Like, he's just, like, he's making mistakes left and right. I mean, that, that last policy was stupid. Like, that's what discontentment in practice for us is. And how shameful, how much of a betrayal of that position, that relationship that the First Lady has to, to do that to her husband, to her president in public that way. That's discontentment. That's what we're doing to the Lord. And when we do that publicly ourselves, it's the same thing that we're doing. Our grumbling is a denial or betrayal of our relationships with God. And there's uh, two more relationships there in your notes. Let me, let me go through this and then um, I'll ask for, or pause for questions or comments. But um, beyond our direct relationships with God through Christ, we also have relationships with one another. And interestingly enough, Burroughs points out um, angels as well and cites Hebrews 1.14. Um, that text says, speaking of angels... Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So angels are there to serve, to help, to administer God's providence for our benefit, for our good. And then in terms of the saints, um, 
you know, we're, we're now a, a family together. I mean, locally, certainly in this body, but also globally with all Christians uh, from, from uh, who are in Christ uh, uh, from the beginning to now. Um, I have a biological family, but I have a spiritual family. We all have a spiritual family in Christ. And the same basic point applies to these relationships as to the previous ones. If we have all of these incredible, exalted blessings, if we share in these relationships, how can we complain? Like, really, how can we complain? And, and Burroughs, um, you know, he, he actually, I'm going to paraphrase Burroughs, who is paraphrasing Moses in number 16. But he says, or we're saying, you who murmur, is it too small a thing for you that you have the infinite treasure that is Christ? Is it too small a thing for you, a rebel and a sinner, that we were made heirs of the universe and the beloved bride of Christ? Is it too small a thing that the Lord who loved you enough to save you from his wrath now indwells you? Is it too small a thing that you who were once dead are now the sons and daughters of the king? And Burroughs goes on and says, does this describe you? Are you in such a position? Oh, and how beneath this position and relationships is a murmuring and discontented heart for want of some outward comfort here in this world. In other words, given who we are and what we have, discontentment is, is so shameful and so beneath the blessings that we have. Questions on that? Comments? Not Okay. All right, let's move on. Um, it is beneath the dignity and the spirit of the Christian. So now we're, we're kind of getting away from the, um, you know, the blessings of our salvation. These are just additional reasons why discontentment is, is evil. Um, it is beneath the dignity and spirit of the Christian. Um, I would hope that if I were to say that it should be our ambition to live life with the same perspective and focus that Jesus had, that no one would disagree. Anybody want to anybody say I'm wrong about that? We should, we should live our life the same way Jesus lived? No takers? Good, okay. Um, <laughs> I'm glad. I'm very glad about that. Um, now, if, if that's the case, though, listen, listen to how Burroughs very um, effectively describes Jesus' approach to life. He says, The spirit of a Christian should be a lion-like spirit. As Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah, so he is called, so we should manifest something of the lion-like spirit of Jesus. His manifest, he manifested his lion-like spirit in passing through all afflictions and troubles whatsoever without any murmuring against God. When he came to drink that bitter cup and even the dregs of it, he prayed indeed to God that if it were possible, that it might pass from him. But immediately, not my will, but thy will be done. And Burroughs' point is that there's no affliction, no suffering, no lack, no troubled circumstance in which Jesus grumbled or disobeyed. He faced every situation, every circumstance with courage, obedience, and faith in his Father, and that is very much the example that we are to follow. In fact, Peter makes that point relatively explicit in uh, 1 Peter 2, 21-23, which I'll read. Peter says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth, when he was reviled, he did not revile in turn. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. 
that, that context is a little more persecution than um, you know general tribulation. But again, that point, Jesus approached those things entrusting himself to his Father. He entrust he he did the he he lived obediently and necessarily he lived courageously, and that's the example that we ought to follow. It's the same spirit that we ought to have, and if. Uh, if we find ourselves discontented and grumbling, we have fallen far from our Savior's example. Questions? Comments? I'm going to ask at the end of any one of these, so just no obligation, but... Cool. All right. Uh, next one. It is beneath our brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, so he makes one point here, and he kind of slices up in three ways. Um, the main point is just as it is unfitting for us to be discontent if our Lord was not, so too is it unfitting for us to be discontent when our brothers and sisters in Christ are not. Um, and so again, he slices up in three different ways. And he kind of does it in past, global present, immediate present. Um, so the, the, the past one, it's shameful. Discontentment is shameful compared to the examples of those who have suffered before us. And if anyone likes church history, you can't read a whole lot without reading examples of persecution, of martyrdom. Um, you, 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 know, you can think of John Huss, who's burned at the stake. You can think of you know, Jim Elliott dying in Ecuador. You can think of um, you know, Peter supposedly being crucified upside down. Um, in the last 2,000 years, our brothers and sisters in Christ have suffered horribly. So how shameful is it then for us to whine and complain and be bitter because we didn't get some thing that we wanted or we experienced some setback in the world when our brothers and sisters in Christ have faced far worse? We should at least follow the same spirit and example that they've set. And very much related, we don't have to look in the past to see our brothers and sisters in Christ suffering. We can look in a lot of places in the world right now. There are countries where Christians can't meet in public. There, uh, where, where preaching Christ is a crime, where conversion can cost you your life depending on the religion you're converting from. We don't need, again, to look at Christians in the past to see examples of Jesus' lion-like spirit. We can look and see what's happening with our brothers and sisters in the world today. And in the same way, how shameful is it that we complain because something happened that we don't like when they're facing that level of persecution and tribulation. The third point that Burroughs makes under this is very much related. This is kind of local present. It, it, it sets a horrible example for everybody else in this room. Look, we, we beat this point a little bit earlier. We have a tendency to sin. In fact, we look for excuses and justifications to sin. How easy is it when we're sharing prayer requests for that to turn into gossip? All it takes is that first person to open that door and like five minutes later, it's like, you know, it's a gossip fest. Um, It's easy for us to sort of take whatever someone does and just add a little bit worse to it and justify it because, you know, it's it's, it's roughly the same. And before you know it, we've sort of descended down uh, into, into the muck. And we don't need the, you know, we, we, we don't want to be those examples to our brothers and sisters. I would hate it if my own discontent led to someone else feeling free to be discontent themselves. It, it you know, gave, gave rise or, 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 or caused someone to not fight the way they ought to fight. Our flesh wants to sin, we'll find an excuse to let, let us not be 
the excuse for somebody else to be discontent. Make sense? All right. All right, letter D, unless there's questions or comments on that last one. All right, it is beneath the profession of the Christian. It is beneath the profession of the Christian. Um, the gist here is think about the gospel. Think about the content and the message of the gospel. The gospel tells us that our biggest problem in life is our sin. The gospel tells us that God will judge the world through Jesus Christ. The gospel tells us that God will burn it all away, establish a new heavens and a new earth in which he will rule over his people. The gospel tells us, as we saw earlier, that we are not a part of the world, that the societies, the the governments, the cultures of every country in this world are under the sway of a lame duck devil, but that we Christians are no longer part of that kingdom. The gospel tells us, as, as Gary mentioned, that we are engaged in a spiritual war where our enemy, if he could, if he was permitted to, would scourge the church off the earth. And therefore, the gospel tells us that we should expect hardship and persecution. Now, given all of those realities, Burroughs points out, what is discontent if not a practical denial of them? When we experience those hardship, and we experience those difficulties, when we experience God's disciplining hand uh, for our sin, when we experience God's pruning hand on our lives to sanctify us, that's all things that the gospel tells us that we should expect. And so when those things happen and we are discontented over them, what is that if not a practical denial of what the gospel tells us is the case? Discontentment on a practical level calls into question just how much we believe the gospel's content and to the watching world it calls into question just how true those propositions are. Not to say that someone who's discontent, you know, has lost their salvation, that 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 they that they aren't actually believers. When Burroughs talks about things like denial, he sort of means this disconnect in our heads between how we're acting and our profession, and that calls into question, you know, how much we really are trusting and believing the things that we say are true if, in practice, we're manifesting something that's incongruous with it, something that's disconnected from it. That makes sense? Did I see a hand that was half raised? No? Okay. Uh, Any questions on that one um, or anything so far? No. All right. I know, somber stuff, but um, all good to get through. Uh, Letter E, it is letter E in your notes, right? No, it's not. I'm on H. All right, my bad. Letter H in your notes. It presumes on God. It presumes on God. Uh, Two more readers, if I can, pretty please. Christy, uh, you got Matthew 6, 9 to 13. Matthew 6, 9 to 13, one more. Stacy. Uh, 1 Timothy 6, 6 to 8. Um, and I might have you read more, but 1 Timothy 6, 6 to 8. All right, Christy, uh, read us Matthew, pretty please. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and let and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil 
So the super familiar Lord's Prayer, I trust it's super familiar. Um, in verse 11, Jesus teaches us to pray with respect to our physical needs. What kind of duration is in view there? Today, yeah, daily. Give us our, our daily bread. Um, Stacy, you had uh, 1 Timothy 6, 6 to 8, please. brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, what what standard does Paul set there for our physical needs? It's uh, pretty clear. It's, it's, It's food and clothing. And to be explicit about this, Paul doesn't mean food for the next 20 years. He's not talking about if I have a grain silo stocked up with 20 years worth of bread, like I'm good to go. You know, he doesn't mean having a small house with a closet that takes care of all his his dress needs for all occasions for the next 15 years. These are immediate needs that he's talking about. Um, maybe not necessarily just limited to the day, maybe that day, next day, but it, these are fi- pretty immediate uh, 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 short duration time frame that he's referring to when he says, if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. And so Jesus teaches us to pray for our daily needs. Paul tells us that we ought to be content uh, with being provided what we need on a day-to-day basis. So why do we think we're entitled to more? Why do we think that we, we, we have any sort of you know, promise from God that we will have more than that? Burroughs asks, when did God ever promise you that you would live at ease and quiet and have no trouble? You have no such promise as this. A Christian should be satisfied with what God has made the object of his faith. And by that he means Jesus. Jesus is enough. The object of the Christian's faith is high enough to satisfy his soul were it capable of a thousand times more than it is, meaning if your soul had a thousand times more capability for uh, capacity for joy, for enjoyment, Jesus would still be enough. And he says, now if you have the object of your faith, you have enough to content your soul. And I stopped Stacy uh, at, at verse 8, but Paul does continue in verses 9 and 10, and he says, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And Burroughs' point is that discontentment over the things in the world not only presumes on blessings that we have never actually been promised, but it also indicates that we may have fallen into the very snare that Paul mentions here in 1 Timothy. Now, one 
quick rabbit trail that I do want to go down. And it's, 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 it's simple. The grass isn't always greener. And this is something that I think uh, we, we can easily overlook, especially in the context of discontentment. The grass isn't always greener on the other side. Show of hands, how many of you in this room have ever daydreamed, fantasized, even for a few minutes, about what it would be like to get a boatload of money? You won the lottery, big inheritance. You don't have to you know, tell me how you got it, but you got a big. Keep your hands up. If you, if you did it, keep your hands up. How many of you, lower your hands if, if I describe you, how many of you, uh, as you were fantasizing about that, uh, would characterize it as a negative fantasy? Like it was unpleasant. If you thought it was negative. If, if your fantasy was like, oh man, that's a nightmare. Don't want that money. Yeah. There was like one hand, and I want to talk to you afterwards. Like, there, you know... Nobody lowers their hand. Everybody imagines it as, as this amazing thing. You win the lottery, and you think about how how amazingly you're gonna, you know, sassily you're gonna quit your job. You you, you think about the vacations that you're gonna go on, the cars you're gonna buy, the food you're gonna eat. Maybe the extra spiritual in the room think about what missions they're going to fund. But it's always pleasant, isn't it? It's always pleasant. Nobody imagines the family members with their hand out. Nobody imagines the relationships that get broken over it. Nobody imagines the overspending and that fun little tax bill you're going to get that takes away more money, you think. Nobody imagines the gift tax that you pay at the beginning of getting those lottery winnings or the inheritance tax that you pay, capital gains, whatever it is. Nobody imagines those things. They just think, ah, I got the million dollars. I'm going to do whatever. The grass isn't always greener. Sometimes we don't have the thing that we're pining for because it would be disastrous if we did. So as we are thinking about, you know, kind of creature comforts and, 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 and the, the, the blessings that we have in this life and what God has provided us for our daily needs, let's also remember, too, that the grass isn't always greener when it comes to riches. Tim. Third to every point we made. But I think this, so much of this, if we really take an inventory of our hearts and what are the things that we are actually tend to be grumble about, not everything, but I would say a high proportion of it, and what it comes down to is we don't want to have to trust God in the future for things that we otherwise don't have. So, I mean, if you put these two texts together, you think, okay, if we have food and shelter, like the basic survival stuff, maybe beyond that, but you know, basic survival stuff every day provided. Mm-hmm. And God was to, you know, if there's some situation where every day you find out, I can stay in my house, you know, we would, that would be like hellish to us. Yeah. Uh, we all just imagine living that way, we would be horrified. Yeah. Because we would be racked with, what about tomorrow, what about tomorrow? Which is the whole point, right? Is God is saying, that's not, you don't have to live that way. Because yeah. I've got you tomorrow. But I think so much of our discontentment is we just don't want to live that way. We just don't want to trust God for what we don't see. Yeah. No, it's a, it's, it is a fantastic, fantastic point. I am happy to trust God for my daily needs tomorrow when I know that I have a salary position. He has provided me that. Of course I'm trusting God, right? I'm not fired. But if, if, if I didn't have that, if I was dependent on, you know, the, the crops coming in or, you know, whatever else, and it was entirely out of my hands how many of us would find that to be hellish? Absolutely. Absolutely.
And, and to that point, again, you know, Burroughs is calling us back to the fact that God has promised to provide, and it's actually kind of where we're going next, but he has not promised to do so in a way that takes daily faith off the table. That means that um, there is no sense of uncertainty as to where that next thing is going to come from. Those promises you don't have. What you know is that he'll take care of you, but it doesn't have to look a particular way, and it's certainly not necessarily at whatever level of of entitlement or comfort expectation that we have in our heads and to the extent that we have anything more than our daily needs in view we run the risk of presuming on god and setting a false expectation that when he doesn't meet it can lead to discontentment by the way this is a really hard one for me too so i'm preaching to myself as much as anyone other other comments or questions on that? Yeah, sure. Because sadness and disappointment are real things. Mm-hmm. And we're not denying that this is a sad situation. This is very disappointing to me. But it's in a different realm of deep discontent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's real. It's real. We're being real about it. Yeah, yeah. The, the, we, I tried to I tried to make this point at the beginning of last week, and I'll emphasize it again. You know. This is all a nuanced conversation. Um, you know, grief, disappointment, um, confusion. There's a lot of emotions that, you know, we can point to Jesus feeling and experiencing and yet know that he didn't experience sin in any way, shape, or form. Um, and so simply having a providence and, uh, from God and, and it being painful, that's not, that's not wrong for us to recognize this hurts. Um, it's just a question of sort of what do we do with it? How do we view God in light of it? Um, and are we presuming? Are we not trusting him? You know, those sorts of things. Other other questions, other comments? Stacy. And not fully processed out, so I don't have the answer before I'm asking the question. But um, we see Christ being in distress, mm-hmm. you know. Um, do we see him being fearful or anxious? Uh, yeah, I, 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 I'm pretty sure. I, I think I went through it last time. Um, not anxious, certainly not anxious. Um, he says sorrowful, not not fearful. I don't think he's. I don't think he's an example of him being fearful or anxious. Um, sorrowful, grieved, um, struck to the point of being immobile. Um, uh, 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 there's another word that I'm I'm blanking on now, but not not fearful and not anxious. You know, the classic example is him sleeping through that massive storm while his disciples are freaking out around him. Um, that's that's more our Lord's courageous spirit. John, I think one thing that really added or brought a lot of sorrow to Christ's heart about going to the cross was the sheer fact of realizing and knowing that he would be forsaken by his father. <laughs> Yeah, I agree. More than Yeah, I don't. I don't. I don't think he was. Uh, he was overly worried about the nails, for sure. There's no way. Yeah, but to be forsaken by his father. No. Yeah. Agreed. 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 All right. Uh, what time is it? Let's 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 press on. Um, this one is, oh, sorry. Uh, this one's very much related to the, the, the previous one. It's sort of the opposite side of the coin. It is beneath the helps that the Christian has. So 
We just talked about how we don't have promises to health, wealth, and prosperity. We don't have any promises that this will be our best life now. Sorry, Joel Olstein. We have the opposite promises, in point of fact. Um, and, and can anybody, uh, uh, this workshop, this uh, you know, group think this, can anybody think of any texts that explicitly tell us that we should expect life to be difficult here? Christina. John sixteen thirty three. I've said these things that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Now I'm realizing it's a different verse, but they're very analogous. Same same basic concept. Um, others. Anyone else have any? Good. James uh, one two. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Yeah, yeah. You're going to get trials. Some other hand back there. Oh, she took yours. Okay. <laughs> we we even could go to you know the beatitudes. You know, blessed are you when you're persecuted. Um, you know, at the end of the day, there's there's quite a few texts that promise us a less than you know highest and best life. Now, um, this life won't be our best life. You can, you can take that to the bank. But we do, though, have promises from God uh, that, that he's going to work all things together for our good, that we have a glorious future inheritance that trumps anything that we experience now, that he is going to provide for us sufficient for our needs, as we just talked about, um, that he's going to be with us at all times and in everything. Unbelievers don't have these promises. At best, they get 120-ish good years here, and then an eternity under the wrath of God. Being discontent over what happens in those 120 years makes sense for those who don't have the promises that we have from God. It doesn't make sense for those of us who do. And that's Burroughs' point. It's beneath the helps, the promises that we do have. All right. Um, any questions on that one? Comments? Randy. Do you say... Yeah, when he goes away, he will send us the comfort, which is the Holy Spirit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. It's, it's hard to uh, 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 under or, or overestimate the, the, the significance and the value and the power and the amazingness that actually is and everything that goes along with that. Matt? I wasn't just stretching. Okay, good. <laughs> it's very confusing. I'm going to the point Christina said earlier about our need to repent um, Part of the tribulation that we face is, a, is God actively doing something in our lives to rid us of self-reliance, of yeah. turning us away from ourselves. And so even as Paul prayed that the thorn would be taken away, you know, yeah. his, God's answer to him was no, and Paul learned to boast in that um, and to actually see that God is at work to provide the power needed. You know, he says... Uh, my grace is sufficient, right? Mm-hmm. For my power is made perfect and weakness. So it's not just that we're victims of a broken world, that we are actively participating in the broken world, and God is trying to rid us of our self-reliance and turn us back to himself. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And, and taking that a step further, Second um, uh, Corinthians 1, Paul makes clear that the suffering that he is experiencing the expectation God has is that the comfort with which he's comforted, he would use to comfort others who are experiencing similar sufferings. There's a, there's a sort of or, or you know, interpersonal uh, dynamic thing going on there as well. It's not all about me. Sometimes what I'm going through is about y'all and vice versa. We are not meant to be doing this on our own. Our lives are Christians. It's a team sport. It's, it's not individual.
kind of both, but let's emphasize that it's a team sport for now. Uh, other questions or comments? All right, let's move on to uh, it's beneath the expectation that God has for Christians. Um, so, and we could we could we could go through this f- forever, but um, some of the commands that the Lord has laid on us in the context of suffering or trials or per- persecutions have been mentioned. Um, one is Romans twelve twelve to fourteen. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Uh, in verse fourteen, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Um, several folks cited James 1, uh, 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And verse 3, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And then First uh, Peter 3, 9, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Now, this is a high bar. This is hard. When someone's yelling at you, you want to run away or fight them back. Like those, are, those are the two things that you, you, you kind of want to do. Blessing them is a uh, distant third option according to our flesh. Um, but they are nonetheless the expectations that God has for us in the context of suffering, trials, and persecution. Um, and, uh, and so discontent, grumbling, murmuring, these things are beneath the expectations that God has for us. And I would be remiss here if I didn't kind of point out that in some of these passages as well, the, 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 the thing that we're supposed to be keeping in mind is implicit. So in James 1, 2, count it all joy. Why? Is it joy because, you know, getting, getting attacked is fun? No, it's painful. It's joy because our faith is being bettered. Our faith is being strengthened. It's being tested for the purpose of refining and, and, and becoming stronger. In 1 Peter 3, 9, don't repay evil for evil, reviling, why? Because to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. We can, we can fulfill these expectations when we have the corresponding perspective on life in the world that these verses call for. Um, our conduct now is informed by our future. That's what Peter was talking about. Um, if we want to bless when we're reviled, we need to recognize that our future good in Christ outweighs any persecution. Um, it outweighs any satisfaction we might get from attacking back. And it outweighs any comfort we might find in shrinking back in the face of evil in the world. Discontentment is beneath God's expectations of us. And our ability to meet God's expectations is dependent on understanding his priority and his goals for us in a given circumstance. Um, letter H, it rightfully, discontentment also, rightfully deserves God's wrath. It's not H, it's Q, whatever it is. Um, it's in your notes. It rightfully deserves God's wrath for the unbeliever and discipline for the believer. Uh, this one is fun. Um, you don't have to turn there. I'll read some for the sake of time. Last week we looked at number 16. That ain't the first time Israel grumbled in uh, the Old Testament. They had actually done it just a few chapters earlier in Numbers 14. Um, and seriously, by the way, Numbers sounds like a horrible book just because of its title, but it's a, it's a good read. Read the book. There's a lot of good stuff in there. Um, but Numbers 14, this is, um, you know, Israel had sent spies into the land of Canaan to sort of scout out the land, and the spies bring back a fearful report. And this is how the people react when they hear it in in Numbers 14, starting in verse 1. 
It says, The congregation raised a loud cry, the people wept that night, and all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or that we would have died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Okay, that's bad. That's really bad. And like so many other stories post-Exodus, it gets worse. Um, So at this point in time, after that, Joshua stands up. Next few verses is him telling the people, hold on. Not as bad as you think. The Lord is with us. He can do anything. We will overcome if we just trust him and be not afraid. That's Joshua's message. And to this loving exhortation, to this good pastoral exhortation, the people respond in verse 10. I'm sorry. The people's response is recorded in verse 10. And it says, all the congregation said, stone him. That was their response. Kill Joshua. I don't like what he has to say. Let's go back to Egypt. It's, this, is, this is the moral equivalent of not liking something Pastor Greg says you know, in the next you know, hour and trying to physically beat him to death afterwards. If you want to really uh, drive that point home. So you know, the Lord steps in. He stops from hurting Joshua. And then he says these terrifying words. He says to Moses, how long will this people despise me? Again, notice that discontented heart being linked with despising the Lord. How long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done them? Going back to our seven points, a discontentment reflects an atheistic, unbelieving perspective on God. He says, I will strike them with a pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. Now, one kind of fun observation is they just, you know, suggested the attempted murder of Joshua. Lord doesn't even mention that. He's zeroing in on the heart of the issue here, an unbelieving, rebellious heart of the people. And he makes clear to Moses and to us that this is not an issue that we should take lightly. Discontent deserves the wrath of God. It deserves discipline. It is something that we should take seriously, which is Burroughs's main, 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 main point that he's trying to beat home here. Questions? Comments? Rejoinders, rebuttals, anything. All right. I have just a few minutes left. Let's start. Uh, we, won't, we won't conclude or get through it all, which is fine. But let's start by looking at some of these evil, harmful effects of a discontented heart. Um, so discontentedness is evil. It also produces harmful effects, although it might be better to say because discontentment is evil, it therefore produces harmful effects. Um, and the first one is you lose a great deal of time. Um, now, I, I mentioned last week that you don't have, you know, everybody who's discontent isn't like discontent for weeks or months or years. I mean, sometimes that feeling discontent and that, that, that position we can take in our hearts can last a few minutes, it can last an hour. Um, but um, it, it, it often, there's a tendency for it to be there for longer than a short period of time. Um, the Hebrew word, just kind of fun fact, for rebellion has its root, uh, root in the word for bitterness. Um, and the Hebrew word for murmuring or grumbling, which we read back in Numbers 16, and I just mentioned in uh, Numbers 14, it literally means to stay the night. 
um, to stay overnight, to camp in a particular place, to be stuck on something figuratively. Yeah, so uh, having bitter feelings about something you can't get over, that seems to be you know, a common understanding, I think, um, in the Hebrew of, of what discontentment looks like. It tends to be something that we linger on. And as we do that, our feelings tend to fester. We tend to waste a bunch of time on something that we can't do much, if anything, about. And to that end, it's, it, you, I think anxiety is a good analogy. Um, you know, you get anxious over something, you spend a ton of time thinking about it, you spend a lot of mental and emotional energy processing through it to no good end, doesn't, doesn't result in any benefit, you can't fix a situation, but you end up laboring under this sort of bad cloud. In the same way, discontentment tends to be something that causes us to lose a great deal of time. Um, and as we're losing that time, as we waste our time in being discontent, think about what we aren't doing. Think about the duties that we are failing to fulfill, the blessing that we are failing to be to others, and the opportunities that we are failing to pursue, which is a good segue into the next point in that it makes someone unfit for duty. And this is what we'll end. Um, given what we just said about sort of these, these bitter, lingering feelings, um, is it any surprise that, that Burroughs thinks that the discontented person is hardly in the right frame of mind to serve God? And just, just reflect on that for a second. If I'm, if I'm bitter and angry about something that, that God has done in my life, how do you think that's going to impact your prayer life? How do you think that's going to impact your enjoyment or just time in the word in general? How do you think that's going to uh, 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 impact whether or not you sign up for that, that meal ministry sign up that's going around? I mean, there's going to be all sorts of uh, derelictions of duty that result from our being discontent. It can make us unfit and or disinclined to obey. That point is reminding me of when Tim was preaching on the same topic, and he made the comment that I'm trying not to forget, <laughs> that Satan or the devil likes to fish in troubled waters, and that's exactly what happens I know in my life. When I get stuck on something, I'm bitter about it, and I'm dwelling on it, dwelling on it. And like I say, it takes, it takes all the joy of the rest of life, and you can just see Satan's hand right there mm-hmm. in those troubled waters. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. We can avoid that <laughs> time is spent. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and uh, man, I, uh, I'm not, not going to do it, but you know, it, it actually leads into the next one, which we'll talk about next week. Uh, discontent. So you, you're discontent. Satan fishes in those troubles waters, and then and then more bad things happen. You know, you you end up doing stupid or rash things to solve the issue, um, to to feel better, whatever it happens to be, and you, you you can spiral. You can spiral, and it can be small or it can be big. Uh, discontent and its harmful effects can lead to other evils. All right. Uh, anyone, last question or comment? Otherwise, we'll pray and wrap up. All right. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you uh, for times like this uh, where we get to be encouraged by just seeing the, 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 the sharp edge of our sin and the need to cleave close to our Lord and Savior, to, 
to be entirely dependent and trusting on his righteousness and the mercy you've granted to us through his death on the cross for us. I pray, Lord, that we would walk away from here um, with with the right tools to diagnose you know some of these issues in our own soul that to whatever extent they plague us that we would be um, repenting actually confessing actually repenting but that we would do so lord with joy as we recognize that while we live in these bodies of sin and death we are no longer part of them that we are new and we are different and we are cleansed and we are righteous in christ and there will be a time in which we inhabit resurrected bodies in which there is no more tendency or desire to sin. And so I pray, Lord, that you would help us rightly repent, but also rejoice and be content um, as we go about the rest of our day. In Jesus' name, amen.